you're looking to change things up in your classroom. You'd like to see more student participation and interest, or you really need a better way to tap into each student's individual abilities. Maybe you're happy with everything in your classroom and you're just that teacher who will stop at nothing to provide the very best opportunities for your students so you're always open to hear more good news. Well, let me personally welcome you to the Student-Centered Science Teacher Podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Carosis. I'm a secondary science teacher with 11 years experience teaching at-risk students in a distance learning cyber model. And yet, I've realized success in my efforts to plan for and execute student-centered learning. See, I believe that a science teacher's job goes beyond transferring specific content knowledge. Rather, I believe our duty is to prepare students for life beyond our walls, to help develop them into informed, active members of society who can confidently make all kinds of decisions. So on this podcast, our discussions will focus on strategies to promote active learning in the classroom and their outcomes, as well as creating and nurturing a culture that enables students to take ownership of their learning by planning next steps and implementing our feedback. Here, we believe that our classrooms are learning laboratories, not just for students, but also for teachers. You'll always get encouragement to keep on experimenting because what you do and how you do it matters. Let's jump into today's topic. On this podcast, I've recently begun a series designed to educate science teachers who are intrigued by and interested in making the switch to student-centered learning in their classrooms. This series was designed to also help science teachers who might have read a few articles, gotten a little bit of insight into student-centered learning, and have tried it out, or are in the thick of it now and beginning to realize it's more challenging to achieve than what it might seem. This series is entitled, Things to Consider When Making the Switch to Student-Centered Learning. If, in this introduction, I've described you, be sure to download the complete guide at www.labineverylesson.com. Dot com slash considerations. That's C-O-N-S-I-D-E-R-A-T-I-O-N-S. It'll take me the next four weeks to deliver a thorough discussion of all these considerations. So if you'd like to jump ahead or get a sneak peek, that's the way to do it. For me, I know that once I've identified a lead, so to speak, on answers to questions I'm seeking, I have a real hard time with the patience it takes to get through to the end. So in the spirit of like-minded impatience, I wanted to extend that to you today. Last week, I discussed how our entire presence shifts when we're using traditional methods of teaching and then decide to create a more student-centered classroom environment. Director to facilitator. Or, using a more playful analogy, director of a movie or play or TV show. Think they're showing and explaining to the lead actor or actress what they want them to do, how they want them to act, speak, etc. And we're making that shift from being the director of a production to the role of supporting actor or supporting actress when we're compared to that lead actor or actress, right? The very purpose of the supporting role is to highlight or magnify the character 
and the decisions of that lead part. So it is in the student-centered classroom. Everything we, as science teachers, do and say and show must ultimately prompt student learning to shine. And as science teachers, the learning we should be most concerned with is mastery of the scientific method. The scientific method, of course, is a very active process that can't be completely understood or appreciated unless it's practiced. And practice makes perfect, right? But, but, those of us science teachers with a specialty, now I'm talking a little more directly to you high school teachers, If your jam is earth science or environmental science, biology or chemistry, physics or engineering, you more than likely know your content very, very well. I've learned that several of my listeners are actually second career teachers. Now, I've personally heard and read a lot about teachers of all focuses and specialties leaving the classroom. So I truly have been stunned to learn just how many are like me and actually left an industrial, commercial, or business setting in favor of a classroom. But speaking from experience, it's that exact shift, whether or not you were always a teacher. The shift from considering yourself or having become the subject matter expert for the content you teach. That's truly difficult to navigate successfully when adopting student-centered learning principles. I was so accustomed to talking at my students, even though I had a great plan in place to do so. Going back to the acting analogy I used earlier, I had a great script. And I went through that same script three or four times a day, half my workday. I was doing the same performance. And it was hard work. I always had a drink handy, and if I were teaching 20 years ago, I'm sure my arm would have been sore from holding it up high to write on the board. Of course, the teachers, and mostly professors in college who came to class in those days with pre-written notes on overhead slides, didn't, or overhead transparencies, you know, didn't have to experience the discomfort of blackboard or whiteboard work, did they? Honestly, when I think back to how I struggled to learn some things throughout my own educational journey, it's no longer any wonder to me at all because most, if not all, of my teachers took that stance. They talked at me. And yes, they were very prepared. Their preparation helped them get through the hour. It helped them deliver a message or demonstrate problem solving. Their preparation didn't help me learn or interact with the content in a meaningful way that would produce deep learning, deep understanding. Now, if you're unfamiliar, I'm just going to remind everybody, I teach in a cyber school. And while I do have access to a virtual whiteboard, I prepare my lesson content using PowerPoint slides and I upload it there. These are, of course, the modern-day equivalent of the plastic overhead transparencies of days gone by. And after nine years of teaching to students with whom I could not see and could barely solicit any responses from, I had fallen into the same exact practice of reciting a script. Delivering content and demonstrating problem solving just to get through the hour. 
You may have heard, seen, read, or assumed that making the switch to student-centered classroom will create more time for you, more freedom, that you'll work less hard. With teachers continuing to leave the profession for a laundry list of reasons related to overwork, underappreciation, unreasonable expectations, and the general difficulty with maintaining a work-life balance, it seems like simply learning how to implement student-centered learning strategies would ease the burden they carry, providing them with more opportunity to enjoy their profession and their personal lives. Folks, I have to remind myself of this sometimes. Nothing really good is ever free and often isn't easy. I am living, breathing proof that those promises claiming student-centered classrooms provide more pleasure and more fulfillment for teachers can be realized. They are possible. And I'd even say they're likely. There is a light at the end of the tunnel. So if you're feeling like you're stuck in the darkness, I promise you it's there. But the notion that they just poof happen, you know, there's the light all of a sudden, that's unrealistic. And it's an unfair, irresponsible idea to peddle, in my opinion. The reason I'm talking here with you is because it wasn't a stressless, work-free transition for me at all. It was a tireless effort to re-engineer my chemistry lesson plans to support student-centered learning and prevent me from falling back to those teacher-centered habits of lecturing and demonstrating. On account of it being a complete and total mindset shift, it took real focus, real intent to craft new interactive science lesson plans. And because I believe wholeheartedly in the benefits of consistency in near everything, I sent out to craft a new science lesson plan framework that would guide the development of every new chemistry plan I wrote. I too then benefited from the consistency that I intentionally integrated into my classroom because now, dare I claim that planning new interactive science lessons is easy for me. Differentiating the student-centered learning activities I incorporate into each interactive science lesson is easy for me. Is it still time-consuming? Heck yes. Think about all I've presented so far in the podcast. And of course, if you're a newbie, take a good hard look through that list of topics and consider listening in on a few. There's a lot there to digest. The student-centered science classroom aims for nearly every aspect of the classroom to adopt its opposite. Students don't listen to facts about science or watch videos and demonstrations. They extract facts from videos, and they experience concepts through exploration of systems. Teachers don't stand at the front of the room talking to the whole group of 20 to 30 students, or maybe less if you're really super lucky, (laughs) they circulate the room, commenting on individual or small group progress. They ask scaffolded questions about individual or small group work that prompts deep understanding. And so it stands to reason that while in a traditional classroom, the teacher does work hard, 
writing, talking, demonstrating, and then doing it all again in periods four, six, and seven. The student-centered classroom teacher will also work hard. But the most challenging, the most time-consuming work, in my humble opinion, becomes the lesson planning that happens behind the scenes. Fundamentally, as a constructivist approach to teaching and learning, the student-centered classroom should be enabling students to construct knowledge through their experiences. This seems to perfectly complement the science classroom, right? I mean, I have no content knowledge or experience as a social studies or an English teacher, but I think it's more difficult to create learning experiences with those subject areas and that content than it is with science. Forgive my potentially excessive use of analogy (laughs) throughout not just this episode, but all of my episodes. It's how my brain thinks. But the learning experience, the student-centered learning activity is the beating heart of an interactive science lesson. And I believe they should hold the same critical importance in other student-centered science classrooms, not just mine. Let's just for argument's sake say that you're an ace when it comes to thinking of learning experiences for your students in your class. There are so many people out there who have amazing ideas they're selling and you probably have amazing ideas in your head. Some of you, not all of us have been gifted that. As it pertains to time, Even if you've cemented your idea, you need to prepare the materials for it prior to class if it's a hands-on exploration, or you need to ensure students will have adequate access to a technology-based learning tool. Additionally, you are not going to demonstrate how to do the activity and assess how well the students do it. You're going to prepare a task sheet or a set of instructions for students to follow, which will hopefully lead them to the concept idea or skill you want them to discover or realize from doing the activity. You'll, of course, need to differentiate this activity and even incorporate student choice. And so consider how you'll adapt these instructions that you've made this task list to accommodate learners at different levels. And you're still making a note guide of sorts if you're a lecture note guide person You're still kind of doing that because students have to record their thoughts. You're actively planning for this note guide to be reflective upon the experience and the systems, the, the objects the students are working with that you've prepared for them to encounter. While you'll have the opportunity to clarify any misconceptions and redirect individuals and small groups as they work through their activity, they need to emerge from your activity having obtained new knowledge that they can subsequently apply in the context of more standardized assessments. And that's all assuming you think or know you're good at coming up with learning experience, activities, and ideas. If you're a teacher who has gone deep down the rabbit hole of lecture and doesn't necessarily have a library of visual aids, videos, or demonstrations to which you can refer, it can take some real practice and lots and lots of time researching options on the internet. This, in fact, is definitely where I'd suggest teachers begin when attempting to make the switch to student-centered learning. Create a block of time each day to search for, you know, quote, student-centered learning activities 
for blank. You know, when I'm looking for an activity, in fact, I need to prepare a new one this year for like dissolves like. So I might type in student-centered learning activities for like dissolves like. The bank of visual aids and simulations is immense out there. And you're bound to find something that complements your content. You know, actually, specifically me, I would look for simulations for like dissolves like. Um, or solubility. I might do, yeah, simulations for solubility. And if nothing comes up, then I'm going to search videos for like dissolves like or videos for solubility. And so, I mean, the time spent just researching can be considerable when you're starting out. You might want to even consider doing this at the beginning of a, of a unit. If you have a shorter unit, you know, if you got five to 10 lessons in the unit and they're all, you know, I teach chemistry, so everything's really intertwined and I have to think about what students are going to see later on or what they've already seen to make sure it's all, it's all intertwined. You know, not all science content is like that. So that's something you want to consider also. I would recommend keeping a spreadsheet of all your options for each topic you know, open an Excel or a Google Sheet and just like list your standard topics in a unit and then, you know, make a little library for yourself. Go back later and evaluate which would be best. Don't sit there all hung up on like, how am I going to use this? How could I do this? Just collect a bunch of options because in doing this myself, what I've found is like I might find something that I think, that I think is awesome and for one reason or another not be able to use it and go out and look again and go, wow, how did I miss this the first time? This is so much better. You know, so really taking the time. And, I, and, and in that way, you can divvy up your time, you know, 10 or 15 minutes a day to get through your list. Maybe it's one, one topic a day even. It doesn't feel, feel so heavy. Um, but be sure to keep that spreadsheet for the future because you may want to or need to resort to other options as technology changes. I mean, specifically, I can tell you that over the years, Flash has gone away entirely, right? And a lot of our simulations online were built in Flash or in Java. I mean, me and my cyber model, I could never rely on giving students a Java experiment to do because they had to actually download the program. And then the, then it's a whole issue about where do I access it, open it, if their computers would even save it. It was a mess. So you got, you know, you have to be really aware of your technology too if you're choosing the technology route. Uh, but there's a host of reasons. Just this year, actually, I have had to replace the technology app that I used for drawing Lewis structures. And I loved the last one. But you know what? I had to replace it because it was Flash. And I found a new one that is way better. Um, and I actually just posted that in my store this week. Anyway, my point is, as you become more comfortable with the process for identifying your activity and leveraging different aspects of it to reach your specific goals, how your those students are uncovering concepts, you might find that certain, um, certain activities, certain resources are going to be helpful. And sometimes you're going to have to go back to the drawing board. But in my short time creating technology-based interactive science lessons for student-centered learning in chemistry, I've come up with only a handful of standard-based concepts for which I was unable to find a suitable medium for exploration. Remember, I'm a cyber teacher, so none of my stuff is hands-on. In these instances, I've leaned on text as a means of strengthening literacy skills at the same time. 
Now by that, I mean I provided students with an informative or otherwise relevant text, not necessarily a textbook excerpt. That's worth repeating. I provided students with a text, not necessarily textbook, that included relevant concepts. I still created a task list that described what students should do with the text and what I'm calling a note guide, which for me is a PowerPoint slide that students write on, um, but you know, for you might be an actual paper guide. Um, also for me, I do a digital guide, which is what I call the digital interactive notebook. So some way for your students to record their answers to reflective questions about what they understood from the activity and possibly could apply from that activity. Here we're talking text. One lesson in particular comes to mind for me because I was just so shocked the internet was devoid of what should be simple, a simple, simple set of simulations. I did in fact struggle to create a learning activity for my synthesis and decomposition reactions lesson. Now for those of you who are, even if you're not a chemistry teacher, okay, um, synthesis, putting together something, decomposition, tearing it apart. And students need to be able to, from that lesson, know the generic form of the equation. They need to be able to see an equation and label it, classify it as synthesis or decomposition. And pretty much that's all. I think in, in my standards, we don't they don't have to predict the correct formula for products. So it's kind of it's kind of surface, I guess, surface level. You know, it's not honors or AP level. At the time I'm developing this lesson, um, this is actually my second year through. My first year through, I did rely on a text that was very weak compared to what I did the second time around. And, and that goes to the fact, too, that like, I mean, you're probably listening to me because you're a teacher. And I've said this several times through my episodes. You're a teacher who just doesn't settle for the status quo. You're seeking out student successes and you know your job is to get them there. So even once you have these plans in hand, um, you might never stop improving them. <laughs> that is, that is my fatal flaw. When I was developing this synthesis and decomposition reactions lesson at, at the second time through, at this time I had been introduced to the CER method for teaching students to write constructed responses to open-ended assessment questions. In this model, the C stands for claim, if you haven't heard about it. C is claim, which is basically answer the question. E represents evidence, and R represents reasoning. Since citing evidence from our observations and experimental outcomes is central to learning from the scientific method, like scientists actually do it, <laughs> combining content, learning, uh, content literacy strategies in, in this example seemed particularly appropriate. So where we can pull on literacy skills now and enhance the, the, the reading comprehension of our students through science, um, steps in the scientific method that mimic it exactly is like super fantastic, multidisciplinary in a respect. Anyway, I identified a text with references to figures. So it was like a, a par couple paragraphs about, it was informative, maybe text, textbook-like, but had references to multiple figures. So three of those figures were, you know, figures one, two, three. Each was a chemical equation representing a synthesis reaction. 
and the other three were chemical equations representing decomposition reactions. The note guide I created and the portion of the digital notebook in which students respond guides them and encourages them to construct knowledge from this activity uh, by filling in three boxes. For each equation, they're doing the C block, which is claim, the E block, which is evidence, and the R block, which is reasoning. Now in the claim box, they needed to build a generic chemical reaction, equation. So that in the end, it should have looked like, you know, a circle with an A in it, plus a circle with a B in it, and then an arrow, a circle with A, B in it. Because what we're showing them is this chemical A and this chemical B result in a chemical change where A and B are together and they are one thing. And this is graphical, right? That part's graphical for them. And that represents synthesis. And then the opposite, of course, to represent decomposition, where they've got a circle. You know, they have all the same tools, actually. They're just reversing the air. They're, no, they're not reversing the arrow. They're, the arrow points in the same direction, but they're reversing the placement of the A, B, and the A, and the B chemicals. So I provided them with moving pieces. Again, I'm a cyber teacher. I work in this world where we're all on the screen together. But in my digital notebook, I think they are also there as, as movable pieces. You can uh, put them in the correct order, how the equation should be. Now, as an aside, if you haven't listened to me much before, I teach largely at-risk, reluctant learners who are enrolled in college prep chemistry, but predominantly have no intention of attending college. And this is important for you if you're listening, because your group of students might feel more prepared to construct these equations from scratch, perhaps. You know, if you're going, wow, that's simplistic. She gave them like a word bank of images to make these equations. Yeah. And that's why time spent differentiating the content is so important. Would I do it that way with my honors group? Nope. I would probably just ask the question, what is a generic, uh, what is a generic synthesis equation look like? And expect them to come up with it. Use A, B, and A, and B. And not have those visual, you know, things. Something so simple as that could could be super helpful in differentiation. So they had to come with, up with a claim reading the text. What is the general form of this equation? And then in the evidence box, students were asked to compare their generic equation to the specific examples referenced in the article. So basically, yeah, I know my, my generic equation is correct because look at this other one. It has two reactants on the left and one on the right for example. Then in the reasoning box, students had to cite the fact they extracted from the text that allowed them, along with the evidence they observed in the figures, to make their claim. All of it kind of went to, how can you be sure that the equation you constructed is the correct one? And on the same note guide, in the same lesson, students are doing this for the decomposition reaction also. And in my original curriculum, which I'll talk about in one episode of this series, um, my original curriculum I was given in sort of the scope and sequence, it has teaching synthesis on a separate day from teaching decomposition. And this is one thing that I changed in doing a student-centered method was to teach them side by side on the same day so students are immediately able to compare and contrast them as well. 
uh, because remember, we want them to uncover learning. So yeah, it's important that they learn about synthesis, the general equation, and how to identify them. But decomposition being the exact opposite is, is also important for them to see. And I don't want to just tell them that. Hey, they're opposites. I want them to see it. Sometimes a reorganization of what you teach and when you teach it is not only appropriate, but very, very helpful. And my inclusion of this detail with my whole text-based text lesson is to help you realize that you are not limited in your ability to craft a valuable student-centered learning experience activity in science. When you're well-practiced, you begin to realize that anything can become the subject of a quality activity. Okay, but what about the students who weren't able to find their way through your well-thought-out, well-designed activity that you spent so much time on? You need a plan for this scenario where some students just don't get it. I've had students throughout an entire year who could never finish in the time provided. Never, ever. And even when I tell you that, I feel a little sting, you know, because I have this super major guilt cloud that floats over my head. <laughs> like, I shouldn't allow that. I should be a differentiating for that student. When in truth, you know, I almost always know that the activities I create, um, of course, will be executed in, in very, you know, it will take different time for different students to complete them. But if they've done just one aspect of it, they probably saw what they needed to see for what, what will come next in discussion. So, and this is, you know, sort of a rhetorical question. Why is time and effort spent planning so critical? I mean, if we're getting real about what it takes to switch to student-centered learning, why does this matter? Because those students too, they need to leave your class with the same knowledge that some others have constructed from the activity. You, me, teachers need to know exactly what we want them to see. And we have to plan for a way to expose that with the whole group at the end of the individual or small group cooperative learning time. Because they're not always going to finish together. They're not always going to work at the same pace, and some of them will be woefully behind. Now, of course, stay with me here. If we're building interactive science lessons that mimic steps of the scientific method, then we're going to encourage data analysis. It's been my experience. Again, perhaps it's the unique group of diverse learners I teach. Maybe this isn't your experience. But it's been my experience that students don't analyze data well. They might observe everything I want them to see, and they might even be able to construct knowledge related to the learning outcomes I plan for. But being able to articulate how the data they collected, whether it's quantitative or qualitative, you know, we have numbers or we have just observation descriptions, how that data supports their understanding. And that's why in the example I gave earlier with CER is so so critical and becomes such a favorite of mine in writing is it forces the evidence portion. My students have demonstrated a great deal of trouble in looking at a data table and kind of freezing. 
I found preparing a complete data set from my student-centered learning activity and, and also preparing scaffolded questioning about it serves everyone, regardless of how complete or incomplete their investigation was. So what does this mean? It means I basically have an answer key. And I have questions surrounding the answer key. And I basically say, okay, everyone saw some portion of this. This is our outcome together sometimes. And, and this, you know, is part of your planning also. Activity-wise, maybe you divide and conquer. And different groups did different portions. Or every student did a different portion. And now you're looking at a table that represents a, a whole unique set so you can identify a pattern that maybe they wouldn't have seen on their own individual exploration but now we see on a broader scale it doesn't matter if the students didn't get through the activity or they're learning how to read they whether they did or did not get through the act, entire activity they're learning how to read and interpret the data that will allow them still in the time that remains to construct the knowledge they need and if they did complete the activity, these scaffolded questions also serve the purpose of me being able to formatively assess the learning value of that activity and ultimately the student's content knowledge and skills. Now, though I've emphasized that learning experience activities are the beating heart of an interactive science lesson for student-centered learning, we all know the heart doesn't beat on its own, right? Our heart is only one of the amazingly interconnected parts that work together to sustain us. And I'm not biology certified yet, but, you know, like so many other things, as I age, I become more and more in awe of the things of this world, and biology and physiology certainly are a few of them. Ultimately, we know our brain controls our organs and our cells, and the messaging between and among all of it in there. So it's reasonable to assume that the student-centered learning experience or activity you create can't really stand alone as an effective lesson. I mean, it absolutely should allow students to construct knowledge. But there's so much more to an effective lesson than just that. In our planning we must consider the student's state of mind and their interests. We need to make the prospect of learning engaging and literally invite them into it. We need them to decide at the beginning that they're all in. We need to incorporate a sort of hook into the beginning of our lessons, one that not only sparks interest and intrigue, but also allows students to assess their own readiness for what's to come. Ideally, this requires us to actively plan to incorporate prior knowledge and activate it right at the beginning of the lesson so students can make their own decision about how they'll need to participate throughout that lesson, whether they're doing that consciously or unconsciously, honestly. We have to do it in a way that absolutely avoids producing a feeling of discouragement. And so isn't my analogy so fitting? <laughs> Our brain allows us to reason and make decisions, and our hook at the beginning of a lesson allows students to make decisions about their learning. Maybe with regard to which notes from former lessons they'll need to refer throughout the, this lesson, or what outstanding questions they'll want to seek answers to. Think like 
what are the reasons we might use a KWL diagram? You know, what I know, what I want to know, what I learned. It's for those same reasons we're providing a specific scientific content scenario to integrate what they know, provide a preview of what they'll learn, and try to activate a connection between those two concepts. I call it review and preview. And I believe it's second only to the learning experience when it comes to building a true student-centered science lesson. Of course, then, depending on the type of content and skills we've planned for our students to master, we need to consider incorporating skill practice into our lessons to, one, ensure that the constructed knowledge can be successfully applied, and two, that students have the opportunity to assess their own learning regularly, and three, that students will feel comfortable with the type of questioning they'll encounter on common assessments. This was one of my big pain points when I did this. In giving them activities to learn, are they going to be able to complete my tests? Because we all know that tests are an inadequate measure of academic success. And it's in this model that it appeared mostly evident to me. But that complicates our job. We're getting real today, right, guys? <laughs> We're getting real. It complicates the student-centered learning lesson planning job. Because we have to make sure that whatever activity we build plugs right into the type of questioning they're going to see on assessments. Because that's ultimately where they have to be successful. Not just in our classrooms, but for your college-based students. They're going to be encountering the same type of questioning there. Now, I've actually already delivered my series on prevent, uh, preparing an inner... An, pff, how about I start that again? <laughs> Now, I've actually already delivered my series on preparing an effective interactive science lesson for student-centered learning. It's a five-element framework that includes all I've mentioned today and then some. In case you missed it, take a look through the episode list of the podcast or download the guide at www.labineverylesson.com slash five elements. My intention today was not to reiterate all my lesson planning tips. Rather, it was to impress upon my listeners what I believe is the absolute critical nature and quality of the interactive science lesson plan you prepare, and that building them can take time and, for me anyway, <laughs> tremendous concentrated effort. Look, the potential positive outcomes from making the switch to student-centered learning are so real, so good, and so achievable. Just a few I can attest to include experiencing how fun, uplifting, and fulfilling it is to teach. In part because my time is spent serving individual student groups and students and small student groups, I actually come away feeling like I know who my students are, what makes them tick, and how to leverage those skills for each of them and for the benefit of the whole group. In this model, I've countless times heard from students that the chemistry class I lead goes by faster than any of their others, that they look so forward to spending time this way in my chemistry class. And when I need to take a day off, or otherwise have someone else lead my class, 
there is no learning loss because my students, given their hook, given their goals, given their activity, need only to be supported and guided through their explorations to construct new knowledge. And if they faltered in a way that a substitute couldn't address, it's never more than a few minutes the next day spent answering some student questions. I'm kind of hooked on the Food Network show Buddy vs. Duff. They compete to make the most elaborate, detailed, special effects soaked cakes. Recently on the show, Buddy said, I forget what they were building, but I wrote it down because it hit home. He said, quote, the juice is worth the squeeze on this one. And it just stuck with me. That's how I feel about student center learning. And more specifically, making the switch to a student centered classroom. I wholeheartedly do not agree that it is in any capacity easy. Be wary of that salesman. While class time may feel easier because you're no longer married to a script and you no longer have to uh, carry that burden, that feeling like it's all on you to produce student outcomes, and that could relieve some stress, it's not easy to adopt the mindset shift of literally flipping all you've ever done on its head. It's not easy to plan learning experience that, learning experiences that can be differentiated until you're well-practiced. And truly, some of that practice comes from actually implementing the activities you've designed to learn what works and what doesn't. It's not easy to incorporate the misconceptions you predict into your questioning, into your activity, so that students take the reins. It's not easy to build in regular opportunities for students to assess their own learning. And it's not easy to always incorporate student choice. Yet. Those are all the things your student-centered lesson plans have to do. And... That's my drum roll, because that was a lot of negative today. You'll never experience more professional, and let's be real, all personal and human in here, you'll never experience more satisfaction and fulfillment than from reflecting upon your current practice and reframing it to incorporate more of these student-centered instructional strategies. I promise you'll never regret it. As a science teacher, what you do and how you do it matters. You might have heard me say that before. As you embark upon this challenge, no matter where you're at in that process, if you're just thinking about making the switch to student-centered learning for your science classroom, if you know you're gonna do it but haven't started yet, if you're actively planning for it now, or if you're a seasoned pro, remember that you have an advantage that I didn't when I started. You have access to a community of peers that is assembling right now to think through the tough questions that do come up. Other science teachers working hard alongside you to reach similar goals. All you have to do is sign on at community.labineverylesson.com. It's completely free now and will always be completely free because my heart is with you 
to provide your students with the best possible opportunities and outcomes. Those that can actually last a lifetime.